to, uh, to John, the end of John's Gospel, chapter 20. We'll get there in a minute. If you hold that open. Loving Lord, uh, thank you for the, the scriptures, the story, the testament, the revelation that speaks of you, that leads us to you, that declares you and draws us in. Help us in this time of continued worship to encounter you afresh. Amen. Amen. Phil was preaching this morning from uh, Mark chapter 12 and reminded us as Jesus was answering the questions to the Pharisees, um, Sadducees, that um, he knew his scriptures. He uh, remind, it was talking about how he, Jesus quoted um, from uh, Moses, uh, Exodus chapter 3, and uh, from the encounter with Moses at the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Bible is powerful. It's life bringing. It affirms the love of God for us, and it contains great wisdom, great wisdom. And we are just uh, so fortunate to have it and encourage us to read it as people of the word. Uh, evangelical is, is an, a word of, of criticism at the moment. Uh, and um, we don't kind of label ourselves too much. But one of the things about being evangelical, whether you knew it or not, uh, is actually we, we, we sit under the authority of the scriptures, that we read them, we trust them, we live in the light of them as they lead us to Jesus our sole authority in all matters of faith and life. I'm sure you knew it, but uh, there are 66 letters books, uh, 7,773,692 words. But who's counting? Different translations have a few others. There are 40 inspired authors. They include farmers and fishermen, poets and priests and prophets written from three continents in three languages, and uh, they include romantic comedies, tragedies, action-adventure, musicals, and kind of like documentaries. Amazing compilation of stories. But the overarching theme of them is that they reveal God is love. There are 400 uh, names and descriptions of God, and, and I, I won't list all 400 or so, but they include, obviously, God and wonderful counselor, mighty God, healer, redeemer, powerful, good, light, life, provider. But centered, clustered as those are about who God is, that God is love is the truest and most central. God is love. Now, I, I know you know that. You hope you know that. But sometimes that we have a hard time believing that, holding on to that. It's true to say that, that some people who represent God misrepresent God. Our experience of that can be very painful and difficult. What comes to mind when you think of God? A.W. Tozer said it like this, What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing to us. I wonder... When you think about God, when I mention God's name, does love come spring, first thing to mind? You see, God doesn't just love you, he actually likes you. 
I know sometimes we separate that in our minds. We say, yeah, God loves me, but you know, he likes you too. Being evangelical, we, we have that kind of mantra, we're sinners, and we kind of think, mm, he tolerates us at best. He likes us. He does and loves us. He's especially fond of you. Maybe you need to hear that. Don't believe me? 1 John 4, 16. And we know, and so we know and rely on God, on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. Love. Jesus laid down his life and showed us the extent of his love. What does love look like? It looks like this. Jesus carrying a 300-pound cross for two-thirds of a mile down the Via Dolorosa for someone else's sin. That's what love looks like. That's love. Allowing someone to nail you to a cross with seven-inch spikes for someone else's sin. That's who he is. That's what he did. You mean the cross to Christ, love. Of course, we get a glimpse of that in human parents. Anyone seen the film Lion? I know Hermie has. She's been raving about it. I made David watch it, even though he didn't want to see it as a film about India. Lion is um, a film... Stars Nicole Kidman and uh, Dev Patel, and it's about an adopted Indian boy. He's five, Saru, and he gets lost on a train and ends up 1,600 miles away from his village as a five-year-old on the streets of Calcutta and all the dangers there. He's eventually adopted uh, by this uh, Tasmanian family, uh, including Nicole Kidman, and uh, later on in life, he's about 25, and he starts to have these flashbacks, and he starts to wonder and remember and think about and want to know what are his origins and his roots, and he starts searching through the wonders of Google Earth. I'm spoiling the film for you. It's worth seeing. There's a scene as he's kind of caught up with, where, where, who am I, where am I from? His search for identity where he meets Nicole Kidman, his adoptive mother. And he's kind of been causing problems. He's not communicating, and she's causing her a lot of pain. And he says to her, she must wish that she'd had her own children because of all the trouble and hardship he and his other adoptive brother have caused. And she looks at him with tears in her eyes and says, I could have had my own children, but I chose you. Your dad and I decided to give someone like you a chance. It's a beautiful scene, and he's stunned into silence as he realized that they chose him not because they couldn't have chosen or had other children, but they wanted to rescue and give this boy a chance. Of course, it's a glimpse of the love that we have as as people, as human beings, as parents, but it's finite, and sometimes parents fail. But God the Father loves you perfectly. He loves you eternally that he won't give up on us. He loves us too much. You see, his love for us is not based on who we are, but on who he is. 
When we succeed, God says, I love you. When we fail, God says, I love you. When we doubt, God says, I love you. God is love. The cross and the resurrection are all about God who couldn't and wouldn't and won't give up on us. God who is willing to go to hell and back. God who extends grace to the very people who put him on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they do. God is love. I want to read to you, uh, we'll read together perhaps as you follow it, a short story from the end of John's gospel. It's early in the morning after Jesus is buried in the tomb. And for the followers of Jesus, Easter Sunday at this point is still a dark, dark day. It's game over. Hope is gone. It's dead. It's buried. And we pick up at verse 11, chapter 20. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. Now, you've probably heard that story before, and, and you probably know where it fits in the story of John's gospel. But we just need to pause for a moment, because we all have this thing called hindsight bias. Do you know that? It all makes sense looking backwards. But in the moment, we don't have that liberty Hindsight bias is when you know the outcome of an event and you tend to assume the ending is inevitable. You know in a film that the main character is going to survive even though they're at that kind of cliffhanger moment. One of the greatest challenges we face when we read the Bible is we know how every story ends. You've been taught them many times. And the element of surprise is gone Peter's called by Jesus to get out of the boat. <gasps> and we know he walks on water. Well, he sinks a bit and Jesus rescues him. But, you know, he kind of that shock, that astonishment is lost. That Jesus is going to the cross and he dies. He breathes his last and gives up his spirit. And we know that Sunday's coming and resurrection happens. And we rush to the end of the story. And we lose something. Mary didn't expect what she encountered. You see, remember this, there's no precedent, no category, zero expectation. She went to the tomb with her spices to embalm a body. She was there for one reason, to grieve. It was part of the Jewish tradition to be involved in the embalming process and she didn't recognize Jesus, Mary. Those that write about these things have come up with all sorts of suggestions of why Mary didn't recognize Jesus on that first Easter Sunday. 
through church history. Some have said, well, she's just a silly woman. I kind of discount that. I think that's not the reason. Maybe people speculate the resurrected body of Jesus looks unfamiliar. Others said maybe she still was tired and was, you know, had the trappings of sleep in her eyes and wasn't properly focused. She's not had a coffee yet. And perhaps more genuinely, she simply had tears in her eyes and she couldn't see clearly. Perhaps she was simply experiencing the intense emotional pain of losing Jesus. And there's no category in Mary's mind for what is about to happen. Verse 15, he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, Tell me where you've put him and I will get him. I mean, even then, she's, she's thinking someone's moved him. He's dead. Let me just do the last rites. Let me do my job in my grief. Tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, how do you hear that word? Mary. Mary? How would Jesus phrase Mary? But in that moment, Mary goes from the agony of defeat to the thrill of victory in a microsecond. She never thought she'd hear that voice again, and that voice calls her name. God knows your name. We're called in Jesus to have a faith with your name on it. Not my name, not Kate's name, not your wife's name or your husband's name, not your parents' name, but your name. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary had the most memorable moment in her life. The moment her life was transformed completely. Sadly, church tradition doesn't tell us what really happens to Mary Magdalene. It's quite limited. But the story is remarkable in that she does hold the most amazing distinction out of anybody in all of Scripture, all of the gospel stories. She was the first person to witness the resurrection of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And as such is forever the apostle to the apostles. She is the first to encounter the risen Jesus and sent to tell the other apostles, Mary. She's the leading actress in the most important scene in all of Scripture and the most unlikely candidate. What do we know about Mary Magdalene? Well, her name gives us a clue. She's from the Magdala region. She carries that in her surname. And Mary Magdalene is from, from the wrong side of the tracks, if you know what I mean, from a troubled background. Mark 16, 9 tells us that Mary Magdalene had seven demons. Seven evil spirits. If you've watched something off Netflix recently and you're thinking, oh, demons like that, no. I do believe in the manifestations of evil in the evil spirits. And Jesus heals her. But maybe it would help us at this moment to think of that, but also we could say that 
Maybe at least she had seven issues, seven dysfunctions, seven unshakable problems, seven mistakes that she can't uh, kind of get over and can't break, that she's broken in seven places. Too often, these other people, these are the other people that we give up on. Too difficult, too broken, too unreachable, but not God. He has this wonderful way of weaving people into his story with his amazing grace. If you have the time and the inclination, read through the genealogy of Jesus' ancestry in Matthew 1 and see the unlikely people woven into the story of grace and salvation. And here in the most pivotal scene in the whole story of the whole world, the most and least unlikely person. And don't you just love God that he chooses, he chooses her, Mary. What defines you? See, we all carry a, a history, we all carry a story, we all have our own brokenness, we all have our own dysfunctions, we all have our unshakable, uh, shake, unshakable problems, we all have our mistakes that seem to niggle away, broken Broken, broken. What defines you? I was reminded of, of Amy the other day. She was here for Miriam's dedication. And um, I've mentioned Amy before, but I love the fact that Jesus has changed her life. When I first met Amy, she was desperately shy. She was 15. Um, in fact, her mum spoke for her for two months before she began to have confidence to speak. Amy was a single parent at 15, and she dropped out of school, didn't do GCSEs. Her story was that she started to bend the rules and mix with the wrong crowd and ended up having sex in a ditch in the local park and became pregnant. She thought about terminating the pregnancy and... She was expelled from school, and, and the origin of the sperm didn't want to know her or her child, and her friends abandoned her, and she was frightened and alone, and her grandparents and her divorced dad told her that she'd wasted her life. Of course, God would judge her and her whole pregnancy, thinking, I've done such a bad thing. She spent all of her time in the nine months expecting that a child would be born with a problem because she deserved it. She'd brought it on herself. She'd known she was doing wrong, and now it was time to count the cost. My first, first phone call, uh, my first day in ministry, September 1999. On the Monday morning, after a weekend of ham sandwiches and volivants <laughs> and quiche, Churches do these things. The phone rang at 9.30, and it was Amy's mum saying, could I baptize her little baby? I was a little bit taken aback. And I sort of said, well, we, we don't baptize babies, but we love what God is doing, and we'll dedicate, come and talk with me. And I remember that first meeting, Amy didn't look at me, and her mum was very shy and little baby boy. And over the course 
of some weeks and the church wonderfully reached out, Amy began to realize that God loved her, wasn't about to punish her. And grace unfolded. And the little baby boy was dedicated and Amy stuck with us and we stuck with her. And she became a Christian and she was baptized. And uh, we started to think about her future and I I said, why don't you come and and help us with another lady who'd offered to do some administrative support for us as in a church and that would mean you can kind of get some computer skills and, and I can write a reference for you should that become necessary. And she said, okay. And she started to take an NVQ and got that and she became eventually a teaching assistant and grew in the Lord. And she now is one of the deacons in the church and she now works leading a class of the school she was expelled from. Isn't that amazing? Dear Amy, the grace of God. There is so much brokenness. Whether it's civil war, the prospect of conflicts in the Korean peninsulas, cars rammed into protesters, genocide, abuse and bullying, sex trafficking just this week. Every town and city in the UK is people who are trafficked and being abused. So much brokenness. When we allow it, it breaks our heart and it breaks the heart of God and we need healing and so much hope. And most of us, because we live in the brokenness of our world, have painful experiences that if we're not careful will define us. They may have been done by us or done to us. We live in we live our lives in reaction to brokenness. We let that brokenness of the past contribute to doubt or resurface hurt or bubble up shame or allow pain to ingress and anger to come and bitterness and living in fear. And our lives just become this like kind of limping attempt to heal that hurt and erase the pain and solve the problems and fill the void and we can't do it and it keeps resurfacing and resurfacing again and again. We all have our brokenness. But that does not have to define who we are. You see, the key facts of my life and the key facts of your life and the things that are in the past can and still do have huge impacts upon each one of us. And we can't change the facts of our life. But I'll tell you this, the future can be changed. The now can be changed. It's never too late to become the person you were made to be. Don't believe me? Read the story of Mary. Out of all the people that God could have chosen to be the first one to see the resurrection, to witness the resurrected Jesus, to be the apostle of apostles, would you have put Mary there? And if God can work an astonishing work of grace in her, Surely us. There is someone who can change your future. With Jesus, it's never too late to be who you might have been. Why? Because the tomb is empty. It's empty. 
the central, the pivotal, the hinge of history. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, the word impossible was removed from our vocabulary. The empty tomb means this. It's not over. It's never over, ever. The central fact of history also is the central fact of your life if you embrace Jesus. And that's what changes the game. If we only celebrate resurrection on one day of a year on Easter Sunday with a chocolate egg, but on the other 364 we live our life as if Jesus is still on the cross, then something needs to change. We need to grasp and celebrate resurrection day by day by day by day because God is in the resurrection business. Resurrection of relationships, resurrection of dreams, resurrection of personality, that died a long time ago. Don't you remember when you were baptized, that symbolic event that as you went under the water, dying to self and rising up the new life in Christ, the new day, the new normal, the new chapter, the new story. Is the resurrected Jesus the central fact of your life? The resurrection defining again and again who you are, that the problems and the brokenness don't define, are not the primary definition, that the grace of God, the power of God, the resurrection of Jesus resets everything. God made him to be, who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. God says, I will transfer your sin into my account. Paid in full, it's finished. The past is wiped clean. That's the good news, sin is dealt with, but it's only half the story because Paul says we might become the righteousness of God. He transfers his righteousness to us. Not what we do for God, but what God has done for us. Hallelujah. The tomb is empty. The central fact in life, in a disciple's life, in my life, your life, is that the death and resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Everything. Jesus didn't just die to make bad people good. Do you know that? He didn't just die to make bad people good. He died to bring dead people back to life. Even more amazing. Theologian, Irish theologian called Alec Mottier began a sermon with these words. And when I read them, it, was, it took me a while to kind of think, really? But he said this, if God's power is resurrection power, then it follows that it only works with the dead. Let me say that again. If God's power is resurrection power, then it follows that it only works with the dead. Every time at the, I'm at the end of my tether, every time past reasserts itself, every time I think it's insurmountable, the problems are too great, it's just beyond hope. Remember and realize that God often always confronts death and brings life. Mary, on a fragile morning, the dawn of a new day, saw and experienced his resurrection power. 
not just to make a bad person good, but to bring dead people back to life. This is the faith we have. This is the impetus that calls us to step out in faith and campaign and love and challenge and pray. And this is the impetus and the reminder that says who we were and what's happened is not the end of the story. He's not finished with us. Now I know you know that, but do you believe it? Does it become the motivator, the mover, the inspiration of every day? I pray so. I pray so. Let's pray together. Alan, wherever you are, thanks. Thank <laughs> you.